We are very excited to welcome Chuck Phillips this morning. Chuck and his wife, Waima, are coming to us after 15 years of service in London, working with Iranians and uh, people from Afghanistan. They have recently retired and are living in the Atlanta area, so they could be near family members, kids and grandkids in the Atlanta area. They're worshiping at Perimeter Church, when they're one of our sister congregations, when they're not visiting, supporting churches. And Chuck, we couldn't be happier to have you and Waima here this morning. Welcome, and Chuck will be bringing the word. Welcome, Chuck. Please come forward. Good morning, dear brothers and sisters. Good morning. Boy, that was good. That was really good. How many churches would do that? I don't know. Anyway, it is a delight and pleasure to be back with you. I think I first came to um, Pinewoods Church. This was probably back in, the, back in the 80s. I was an elder at a PCA church in Mobile. And if We've been coming back ever since, intermittently, so it's just a delight and pleasure to see, see you. You know, I think I made one mistake. Before I came today, I should have checked the dress code. <laughs> I was in a PCA church years ago, and I was going to go out one evening with the pastor. We were going to do some visitation together and so I went straight from work to go meet my pastor to do visitation with him and so I got there and I had a town and the pastor didn't have a town and so he told me Chuck when you do visitation with me I want you to look nice but don't look nicer than me <laughs> So I may be in trouble today, but I'm sure my brother Joe will be gracious. I'd like to bring you greetings from our team members that we have left in London. I'm sure many of you know them, David and Marcia Jones. Uh, they were with us 10 years in London before we left, worked with us in the ministry among Iranians and Afghans. And then Franklin and Beth Beaver, they've been with us there for a little less than five years. They're actually working at a church plant of our church, uh, south of our church. You know, when we, when we were left London, we had a dream team. We loved our team members. We loved fellowshipping together. We loved praying together. And so it was hard to leave such, such a wonderful team. It was hard to leave our church. You know, these had been our dear Christian friends for 15 and a half years. It was hard to leave the Iranians and the Afghans that we had come to know there in London. And many of these had come to know through our ministry, come to know the Lord Jesus and were part of our church. It was hard to leave, but we felt it was God's time for us to come home. And we continue to feel that way. Just want to thank you so much for your prayers for us. You know, we have borne fruit in London, but we all know that fruit comes from the true vine, the Lord Jesus. He produces it, we bear it, and it comes as we pray, but it also comes as you pray. 
So you have prayed for us. So we feel you have given to us. You have prayed for us. We, we feel like you have been part of our ministry. And we believe in God's economy and his sight that that fruit is your fruit as well. So thank you so much. I want to thank you also for praying for me, particularly in these last three years. I faced a health crisis. I had to have uh, open heart surgery. I had an aortic valve replaced and I got hit with repeated serious infections, was thrown back in the hospital to go on IV antibiotics a number of times and they went in and did a second open heart sur sur uh, surgery on me. Uh, I was in the hospital 125 days, seven hospitalizations. I want to report to you, I've been infection free for a year and a half. God answers prayer. I'm here. I'm vertical. <laughs> Thank you so much for your prayers. Let me tell you, it, it was just a colossal comfort to me to know that when I was there in that hospital bed, the doctors didn't know exactly what infection I had to know that God's people were praying for me. Wonderful comfort to our hearts. So thank you so much. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 or turn in whatever electronic device you use to view the Bible. Luke chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. This is the parable of the dishonest manager. If you're like me and grew up on the King James Bible, it's the parable of the unjust steward. You know, I think this is a parable that is rarely preached from. I've been a Christian for over 50 years, been going to churches, listening to sermons for over 50 years. I think in all that whole 50 years, I've only heard one sermon on the parable of the unjust steward. I think I know why. It's because the central character in this parable, the steward, he's unjust. He's dishonest. He's a crook. And yet, in this parable, he's commended. So let's hear God's word. This is Luke chapter 16, 1 through 9. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd 
in dealing with our own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Before we look at this, brothers and sisters, let's bow for a further word of prayer. Father, we thank you that this is your words. These are words from the lips of your son. These were words for the disciples, and we thank you that this morning these are words from you and from your son for us. And we ask you now for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be our teacher. We pray that he would illumine our minds. We pray that you work in us today through your word to make us more like the Lord Jesus. We pray that because you work in us, there would be pleasure in your heart as you look down upon us and see what you've done in us. We give you thanks for what you will do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every morning when I get up, I have to have, very first thing, coffee. So I make a cup. I sit down. And before I look at my Bible, I just steal a little look on my smartphone at the news. What has happened, been happening in the world? And I also push another button on the front of my smartphone that says stocks. And I can see what has been happening in the stock market. What has been happening with the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Has it been going up or has it been going down? Now why would I care about that? It is because much of my retirement is in the stock market. If, if the Dow Jones Industrial Average goes up, I have more to spend for my retirement. If it goes down, I have less to spend for my retirement. What is my concern? My concern is this. Have I adequately prepared for the future? Will I have enough money to live on for the 10, 15, or ever how many years God will give us for retirement? This morning I want to talk to you about preparing for the future. And that is Jesus' point in this parable. But we're not talking about the 10, 15, 20 years of retirement you may have or which you may already be in. We're talking about preparing for the millions of years that will follow eternity. How do we prepare for the future? How do we prepare for eternity? Well, the first and most obvious way that we prepare for eternity is putting our faith and trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. His death on the cross for our sins, the righteous life that he lived, putting our faith and trust in him so that our sins are gone and his righteousness is imputed to us. 
If you do that, your destination for eternity, it's assured. That's the first. That's the most obvious way that we prepare for the future. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about another way of preparing for our future. Something that we can do right now in the present that will affect our future in eternity. And it has to do with our money. The amazing truth that Jesus teaches here in Luke 16 is that you can use your money here and now in this life in a way that will assure a wonderful welcome for you when you enter into eternity. I want us to see four things this morning as we look at this passage. Number one, the plight of the dishonest manager. Number two, the scheme of the dishonest manager. Number three, the master's commendation of the dishonest manager. And number four, Jesus' application for us, make friends in eternity. So the first thing we're going to look at, the plight of the dishonest manager. We're introduced here to someone. This is the biblical concept of a steward. A steward in the ancient world was a business manager. But he was not a business manager for his own farm or his own house or his own estate or his own affairs. He was a business manager for someone else. Someone else entrusted to him his business, his farm, his estate, his money. And he, he used it for his master. We're also introduced here to the rich man, the master. He had great estates. He had great agricultural holdings. The parable speaks of great amounts of olive oil and wheat that the estate had produced and sold. Now it seems that this rich man lived at some distance from his estate. But this was no problem. Why? Because he had a steward on the spot. His representative, his business manager was there to run the farm, to run the estate, to sell the products, and to make money for his master. He was a steward. He didn't own the estate, but these things had been entrusted to him to use for his master. They were not given to him to use for himself or his own profit or his own enrichment. They were given to him to use for his master. You know, there's an application for you and me right here. You and I are stewards. You and I sustain exactly the same relationship to God. If you're a Christian, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we know the Lord Jesus, we are stewards of a heavenly master. You and I possess nothing in and of ourselves. Everything that we have, God has given it to us. But who does it belong to? It doesn't ultimately belong to us. It ultimately belongs to God. He's given it to us but he's entrusted it to us to use for him. But there's a problem with this steward. 
We see in verse 1 that he's been wasting his master's possessions. As we look more at the parable here, we see that this means more than that, than that he was simply a poor manager or a bad businessman. He was dishonest. He was a crook. If you look down in verse 8, he's called the dishonest manager. We're not told exactly how, but in some way he used his position to line his own pockets, to enrich himself. You know, he didn't get away with this forever. Word of this finally got back to his master, who is understandably upset. You know, this is the equivalent today of an employer finding out that one of his trusted employees had been embezzling money from him and stealing from him. So the master finds out, he hauls him up on the carpet, he has to appear before the master. Obviously he's guilty, there's no word of defense here, there's nothing the steward can say, it's an open and shut case. So the master in verse two says to him, you cannot be manager any longer. In other words, you are fired. You're out of here. Your history, you're gone. You're in the street. You are unemployed. But not yet. There's one last thing that the master gives to the steward to do before he's terminated. He says in verse 2, turn in the account of your management. In other words, close the books. Finish the books so I can see what my estate has produced, how much you've sold, how much money you've made, and how much you owe me. So he had one last task to do. You know, that also has application to us. One day, our stewardship will come to an end, either by our death or by Jesus' return, and one day, our master will call us to give an account of how we've used the resources that he's entrusted to us. You know, this is the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. This is the parable of the meanest in Luke 19. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment to determine if we are Christians. This is not a judgment to determine if we're going to heaven. This is a judgment to determine reward. And the question that we will be asked in that day is, what have you done with what I have entrusted to you? Now back to the parable. Do you see the plight of the steward? Do you see what kind of future he has? One minute it's rosy, the next minute it's dismal. He is going to be unemployed. He's going to be out in the streets. What is he going to do? He said, I cannot dig. I've had a desk job all my life. I don't know anything else. He says, I'm too proud to beg. What is he going to do? He comes up with a scheme to ensure his comfort in the future when he loses his job. When he's kicked out of his master's service, he comes up with a scheme so that he'll have a wonderful future and so that people will welcome him into their homes. This brings us to the second point, the scheme of the dishonest manager. He doesn't have much time. 
So he immediately comes up with this scheme, and this scheme is true to his character. This scheme is as dishonest as his earlier use of the master's possession. And his scheme is this. While I've still got this job, while, I can still, while I'm closing out the books, he says, I'm going to go and see all of my master's debtors. These are businessmen. They bought wheat, they bought olive oil from his master's estate, but they bought it on credit. They've been billed for it, but they haven't paid the debt yet. And here's what, here's what the steward says. He says, I'm going to cook the books. I'm going to fix the books. I'm going to show each of these debtors owing less than they actually do. You see what he's doing in effect. He's saying, some of what you bought from my master, you will get for free. And then you can sell it. And then you can be rich. You see, he's doing a colossal favor. Even though it's illegal, even though it's dishonest, he's doing a colossal favor to each of these debtors. Now, why is he doing it? Why is he showing them this favor so that when he loses his job, these guys will be indebted to him. They will be obligated to him. When he loses his job, they will welcome him into their homes and take care of him. Do you see his scheme? Do you see what he's doing here? In this one last crooked act, he's indebting these men to himself. Do you see what he's doing? He's preparing for his future, albeit dishonestly. And this brings us to the third point, and this is the surprise in the parable. The third point, the master's commendation of the dishonest manager. So the master learns of this scheme as well. He learned of the earlier scheme where the man had been wasting his possessions, but now he learns of this scheme as well, and he calls the steward before him. What do you think his response is going to be? You think if he was angry the first time that he cheated the master, oh man, here the second time, he will really be ticked. He will really be angry. But here is the surprise. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager. Why did he commend him? Is he commending him for his dishonesty? No. Look again at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. The point of commendation was his shrewdness. Wherein was his shrewdness? It was in preparing for his future, even though what he had done was dishonest, it was illegal, even though the master had suffered further financial loss from it, the master still could not help but admiring the shrewdness of this man and the foresight of this man in preparing for his future. Now here's the question. What is Jesus' point? What is Jesus' point for you and me? This brings us to our fourth point. Jesus' application of the parable, make 
friends in eternity. And Jesus' application begins in the second part of verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. You see, there are two kinds of people here, Jesus is saying. There are people of the world and there are people of the light. There are unbelievers and they are unbelievers. And Jesus is saying here is that oftentimes unbelievers are shrewder and wiser than believers are. Now he's not saying that they are shrewder and wiser in spiritual things. If they were, they would be Christians, but they're not. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Unbelievers are shrewder and wiser in worldly things than Christians are in spiritual things. Unbelievers are wiser in preparing for their future in this life than believers are in preparing for their future in the next life. Unbelievers are better in preparing for their retirement here on earth than believers are in preparing for their eternity in heaven. Now we've still got a question to answer, to ask. What is this preparation that Jesus is saying you and I should make here, that we should be making if we are shrewd and we are wise. You know, I believe Jesus is talking about reward in heaven. You know, thankfully, all Christians go to heaven by God's grace. It is an absolute free gift. Everyone goes because they put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and what he's done. But the experience of heaven will not be the same for all. There will be reward for some that others will not receive. But what is that reward? And more importantly, how do we get it? Or in the language of this parable, how do we prepare for eternity? Listen to verse 9. And I believe this is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. It's a stunning verse. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into everlasting dwellings. Now Jesus here is talking about unrighteous wealth. What is he talking about there? Obviously he's talking about our money and he's saying that by your money you can make friends. But he's saying that when your money, here and now, you can make friends, but they'll be your friends in eternity. Because it says they will be your friends when it fails, when your money fails, when it's no longer any use for you. Then you have friends in eternity. Do you see what Jesus is teaching here? You can use your money here and now in a way that, when, that will make friends for you in eternity in heaven that when you die they will welcome you to heaven. Isn't that stunning? In other words, the way you use your money now will in some measure determine your reception then. How do you and I with our money make friends in eternity? 
When you put your money in God's work, when you invest in His kingdom, when you invest in kingdom work, guess what you're doing? You are making friends in eternity. When you give your money to missions, when you give your money for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, when you put your money in faith promise to support missions, what are you doing? In Jesus' words, you are making friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now this is not explicitly taught right here, but let me just tell you what I think. I think that when you give your money to God's work, whether it's here or whether it's on the mission field, I believe that in eternity there will be people who will meet you, who will say to you, I'm here because you gave. You paid so that the gospel would come to me. I'm here because of what you've done. Welcome, brother or sister. Boy, isn't that stunning. Could you think of a better way to use your money than that? I cannot. Now the question may come up. Can you buy God's reward? And the answer is no, you cannot buy God's reward. You cannot buy God's reward in heaven any more than you can buy God's blessing here and now this life because everything that God gives us, whether it is now in this life or whether it is in heaven, it's by grace. Right. It's a free gift to people who do not deserve it. But think of it this way. If you have money, why do you have it? You say, oh, I've earned it. I worked for it. I've got it. Wrong. You have it because God has given it to you by His grace. And what if God gives you a heart to give that money to His work? Why did you have that heart to do that? Because God, by His grace, gave you that heart. And then you get to heaven and He rewards you for it. Just, just think of that concept. You got the money by His grace. You had a heart to give it by His grace. Then you get to heaven and you get rewarded by His grace. Isn't that stunning? This is absolutely amazing. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning. Number one, are you prepared for eternity? Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus? and what he's done as your only hope of salvation. Number two, I want to ask you, do you realize you are merely a steward of what you have? All of it ultimately belongs to God, and you're just a steward. He's given it to you. He's given it to you to provide your needs, but he's also given it to you to use for him, his benefit, his honor, his glory. And I want to ask you, 
are you preparing for your future? Not the future on this earth, but your future in eternity. Will you have friends to welcome you into eternity? You know, one of the most famous missionaries of the modern day mission movement was a man named C.T. Studd. Perhaps you've heard about him, you've read about him. He was born in 1860 in England. He was born into a very rich and wealthy family. His father had been a planter in England, in India. He had made a great fortune. He had returned to England to live out the rest of his life, a life of ease and of pleasure. But his father heard D.L. Moody preach. His father had become a Christian. And several years later, C.T. Studd heard D.L. Moody preach. He became a Christian. And at the time that C.T. Studd became a Christian, he was a famous athlete in England. He was a sports idol. His name was on everyone's lips. He was famous not for baseball or basketball or football, what we would call soccer. He was famous for this weird little game they play in England and in Commonwealth countries called cricket. And he has been said to be the greatest cricket player that ever lived. You know, he, he was the equivalent of a playing on a national championship football team. He's the equivalent of being a quarterback on a national championship football team who wins the Heisman and is, is assured of going number one in the draft. This was C.T. Studd. He was famous in England. When he was converted, he felt God's call to the mission field. He went out to China in 1885, and many people were shocked that this great athlete would waste his talent and ability on the mission field. Upon his father's death, he became heir to a sizable inheritance in today's money. It would be over half a million dollars. And of course, you know what he did with it. He gave it all away. He gave it to support the work of missions. And you know what he said? I'm putting this money in the bank of heaven. Here's a man who realized if you keep your money, it will only benefit you in this life. But if you give your money away for the spread of the gospel, it will benefit others and benefit you for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, will you have friends who will welcome you into eternity? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from the lips of Jesus. And we have to come to you and confess that we have not been good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. And we pray that you would give us grace to have the eternal view deliver us from living for here and now and for what we can accumulate here in this life. And may we live for the next life. May we live and give that one day we will have people 
welcome us into eternal dwellings. O oh God, work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Use these words of Jesus in our hearts and lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.